0: Matthew chapter 26, 2,000 years ago our Savior died and in the days leading up to his crucifixion he spent some time with his disciples talking about a number of things and beginning with verse 1 of Matthew 26 we're going to teach a lesson entitled pour it out. Pour it out. Verse 1, it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Verse 6, now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat, or supper there. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said to them, "Why trouble ye the woman, for she hath wrought a good work upon me. And then you can see there in verse 7 again that, Sentence toward the end of the verse where it says, and poured it on his head. So this is why we titled this, Pour It Out. So let's have a, a, a word of prayer. Fathers, we look into this scripture. We pray that you'd minister to all of us. We're grateful for all the steps that led to Calvary, even more so for the ones that led from the empty tomb. And Father, as we get into this tonight, Lord, speak to all of our hearts clearly because we know you're worthy of all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. In previous chapters, Jesus was talking about the period just before his return, and in chapter 24, verse 3, you can see the disciples had several questions. They wanted to know when these things were going to take place, what would be the sign of his coming and of the end of the world. And The Lord began to speak to them about false teachers, false prophets, troubles and trials in their family. He even told them in chapter 25 that there were some wise and foolish virgins that typify the church in the last days. And then he told another parable about people that were given talents and should have used them in order to produce a greater blessing for the master. But they didn't even do that. Uh, one of them in particular certainly didn't do that. So the, he concludes by telling all of them at the end of chapter 25 that there's coming a point in time where people are going to stand before the Lord and they're going to be judged according to how they treated the stranger, the naked, the imprisoned. And the last verse of the chapter said, folks are going to go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. So on the heels of that, when Jesus completed this particular discourse, which we call the Olivet Discourse, because he taught it on the mountain of Olivet. It's at that point in verse two here where he speaks to them about the fact that in forty-eight hours the feast of Passover was going to begin. Now what was the feast of Passover? Passover was one of the very important feasts on the Israeli calendar, the first feast on the Israeli calendar in their Year because it had to do with the Exodus coming out of Egypt. You remember they were slaves, and while they were there, it, we are told in Exodus chapter 12 that the children of Israel had Moses doing miracles, signs, and wonders, and all of these things had a cumulative effect. And Pharaoh eventually said, when the death of the firstborn came to the Egyptian people, get these Israelites out and get them out now. But before that particular plague broke out, the scripture tells us the Lord had told Moses, say to the children of Israel, everybody get a lamb for every house. And in Exodus chapter 12, the last few verses or last few words of verse 3 says that a lamb for every house. And if the house was small enough where they didn't have enough people in the house, then they just combined with another house. But they took the lamb, killed the lamb, butchered that lamb, and then they had to cook that lamb and then devour that lamb. But the blood they were supposed to take and put the blood over the doorpost. So that blood's going to be across here, coming all the way around. You're going to pass under the blood. You're going to pass through the blood. And the blood is going to be the protection for the individual that is in covenant with God. And that covenant, of course, at this time was the covenant he had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's what they did. And the Lord said, I'm going to pass through this night. And when I pass through, everywhere I see the blood, nobody's going to die inside that house. So you, you better believe they were, they were clearly uh, demarcating their homes and smearing that blood around the doorposts. And as I often tell people, if it had been me, I probably would have wrote my name and blood on the rooftop just to make sure God knew exactly who was in that house. But the blood was a protective element for the children of Israel and when Pharaoh released them they left and one of the things God said to them was you are to commemorate this in every generation so every year on the calendar there's to be unleavened bread because you had to make it quickly in haste and you are to You know, make sure that when you have this, you tell the story and make sure you quote the history. There was a time where my father was a Syrian and he lived in Mesopotamia. And then God led our ancestors over into the promised land. And then we ended up in Egypt. And here we are now coming out. So it's this particular feast that the children of Israel are now commemorating. And the reason this is important in Matthew 26 regarding the death of Jesus is because Jesus now, as John has told us, is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And this is the Lamb that is going to be slain so that all of us can be protected because His blood is going to be applied to all of our hearts. So we're in Matthew chapter 26. Well, in verse 2, it says in that final sentence there, the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Now, let's let's remember, whenever a lamb was brought to the tabernacle gate or to the temple, that lamb came innocently. They, They had to examine the lamb to make sure it had no spots, blemishes, deformities of any kind. God would not find it acceptable. And once it was judged to be suitable for sacrifice is at that point, the priest sacrificed it, took its life and had to deal with it as an offering. So this is why Jesus speaks about the son of man being betrayed. One of his own did it. Now You have to think about that for a second. Uh, Betrayal is not a uh, situation any of us would ever enjoy and if you've gone through it before and had somebody close to you that proved to be a traitor or betrayed you you know that wasn't a happy circumstance at all nevertheless in order for Jesus to get to Calvary somebody close to him had to turn his back on him and it was Judas Judas was the one that betrayed Jesus sold him for about the price of a slave and Jesus ended up going to Calvary. And that last word of verse two, speaking of him being crucified, tells you the manner of his death. It was horrific. There was nothing about his death that was supposed to be easy on the eyes. When a person caught a vision of, a, of another being crucified, it was supposed to leave a, a memory stained in your head that would leave it, make it difficult for you to even sleep at night. That's why the Romans designed it the way they did. They didn't want anybody to ever see something like that and then walk away saying, oh my, let's do that again. No, it was terrible to think of what Jesus endured for my sin and for your sin. But because of the Passover feast and because of his death, we recall Corinthians where it says Christ is our Passover. See? Christ is the one who suffered on your behalf and my behalf. So verse three then gives us some information here. He, he it takes a, a little turn here and shows us some behind the scenes maneuvering with the very religious people. You've got the chief priests. These were the Sadducees who ran the temple and were empowered by Rome to be in charge of the religious affairs of the temple. You have the scribes who were the professional copyists of the Hebrew letters. These are the ones who produced the scrolls that people read in the synagogues. Then you had the elders of the people. These would be your older folks of different tribes, of different villages, And the Bible says they came to the palace of the high priest. Now, in the Greek, the word palace here, in other places, is translated court. So this was a residence that Caiaphas had. But at the same time, it was a place where he issued his verdict. Now, in Israel, if you ever get there and take the tour, they've got a place kind of underground where you can go and see uh, Caiaphas' palace there. And they have the actual spot where he would have been, you know, occupied with his little throne and seat of authority. And then they have the little courtyard area where you can kind of stand and look and see where Peter and Jesus and some of them might have been positioned in all of these different locations. But it's amazing to me to think that a man like uh, Caiaphas or even Anna uh, could have such a palatial residence. You 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 got to understand. There's a lot of money in religion. There's a lot of money in religion, and and here in ancient times, just like in modern times, religious people do fairly well. They uh, now they 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 may not necessarily be pastor and king of kings, but I'm telling you, there, there are a whole whole lot of folks around around planet Earth. These gurus in the far eastern religion and places like that. But but they they're involved with a lot of finances. But you can see here in verse four, they consulted that they might take Jesus with subtlety. So here's the conspiracy: Jesus is teaching, Jesus is preaching, Jesus is healing. But the manifestation of Christ in the earth has produced in these religious people a desire to kill him because he was manifesting everything they couldn't. The cripple weren't coming to the high priest. And the people that had problems weren't coming to the elders. The little children weren't running up into the arms of the scribes, but they did want to be around Jesus. People weren't sitting out on the mountain tops and hillsides to listen to any of these folks who ran the synagogues, listening to them teach at all. But now jealousy and envy is so great, there's a conspiracy now to attack this Lord and Savior and to take his life. Now, they didn't just want to imprison them. Folks, they wanted them dead. And it's not enough just to have Jesus exiled to another country. They did not want him breathing anymore, because as long as there was breath in him, he was manifesting God in a way that they that they couldn't do it. So you, you've got to understand that Jesus also told his disciples in another place. Don't be surprised if they hate you. They hated me. See, isn't that what he said? Yeah, if if they hate me, they're going to hate you. So, so now we know he's resurrected and he's in heaven, but the Bible says in the book of Acts that he lives in our hearts by faith. So to the degree that Jesus is manifested in us, don't you believe that there's a lot of hatred and envy and disdain towards the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. So I, I have people sometimes, they'll ask me, they'll say, do you think that... Our nation is in the condition today because of, you know, the church. And I said, well, partly, yes, no. And I'll say that because of this. Jesus said the church that he was building, the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. That's the true church. That's what Jesus said in Matthew, his church, the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. They wouldn't overcome the culture. They wouldn't overcome the mentality of believers in the kingdom of God. And they'd never be able to dethrone citizens from their place at the right hand of the heavenly father. However, there is a compromised church. There is a mixed church and it's that mixed church that very often we uh, hear about and they're the loudest ones and they seem to be everywhere with a megaphone and some kind of trumpet and they're blowing it loud telling everybody come join me in all of my iniquity and then if you open up your mouth they'll say something like well you're narrow-minded you know you're closed-minded you're provincial what makes you think your representation of the kingdom of God is the only representation of the kingdom of God after all if I worship other gods and I worship Jesus I'm still a Christian So you have a whole lot of people that buy into that. And this is why there's such a division presently between the church of Jesus Christ, the true church, and then this compromised thing. Because the true church is doing everything it can to manifest God through his word. And that other church is doing what it can to manifest its own religious traditions and its own idolatry. So behind the scenes, there are conspiracies to try to figure out how in the world can we put a muzzle on those people that are truly manifesting Christ. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is wait and listen to some of these secret meetings that politicians and people have. And they're always behind the scenes trying to figure out how can we get the Christian perspective removed from the public forum. Now, this isn't just, you know, somebody just sounding another alarm of pessimism, folks. All you have to do is watch the news, watch the television, pay attention to society, and you can see there's envy and there's a conspiracy. When You've got people like some of these folks on television that'll say a Christian is a terrorist and then say something positive about people that blew up the buildings in New York, then you know there's something wrong here, you see? If, if you have people who go out of their way to try to promote the very things that God condemns in Scripture, and then for us who then try to promote what God approves of, but yet they condemn us because we're trying to promote that, you know there's an attack and a conspiracy. This is why we have all of these new terms, you know, that people want to use. They say, well, we have to be tolerant and use tolerance. But we never needed that as Christians, and we never needed that term in this nation because we already had words that were better than tolerance. Love, compassion, tenderheartedness, long-suffering. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. That means that within that particular quality or characteristic of love, there is the ability to discern, this is right, this is wrong. I love you, but I don't approve of what you're doing. Amen? See, so that's in the concept that God puts together. But tolerance is different. The word tolerance, it's the way they've constructed it now. It's devoid of any kind of uh, distinguishing marks. It certainly can't discern between good and good bad and evil. It doesn't even want to say something's right or something wrong. You just put up with everything. So there's no good, better, best. There's no bad, worse, or worst. If you're a tolerant person, you look at anybody's lifestyle, anybody's speech, and you don't say anything because you tolerate it. Folks, I'm telling you that the church of Jesus Christ is being groomed in America to be a man pleaser. That's exactly what's taking place. We're we're learning new vocabulary. We're learning new terms in order to not offend sinful people, but at the same time to offend him. This is why the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders were working hard because they wanted to undermine everything that Jesus was saying, doing, and living. They had their own understanding of what Greek words meant. They had their own understanding of what Hebrew terms meant. They had their own understanding of what the feast represented. And Jesus came along, and he's letting them know, I'm going to be this Passover lamb, and I'm going to be the one that's going to die for folks sin." And his cousin, John the Baptist, even knew it way back yonder. Yeah. So coming back to verse 5, the, the people who wanted to kill Jesus said, we, we, we should do this, but we can't do it on the holy day. Otherwise, there's going to be a rebellion. See, So they're afraid of some kind of tumult. And they don't want an uproar amongst the people. So they're afraid of the people, but they're not afraid of displeasing God. They're not interested whether or not they're going to grieve the Holy Spirit or, or bring about the wrath of God, if we say it that way. That, that was no interest at all because they honestly believed God was on their side just like most religious people who don't know God. They honestly believe God is behind me to help me stop what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. So in verse 6, then... We, we take a, another little rabbit trail here and we go to Bethany and we go to the house of Simon the leper. Now, if Jesus is going here, this says a whole lot about our Savior. Because in the Old Testament, if you had leprosy, you had to stay away from people and people had to stay away from you. So I'm going to assume that this, this man was a healed leper. But even if he wasn't healed, Jesus wasn't afraid of his leprosy. Now, if you've ever seen a person with leprosy or you've been to a leper colony or seen a leper colony, I can tell you right now, the smells are pretty bad. They're certainly unforgettable. If, if you've seen a person with long-term leprosy, then you may have seen people uh, where, where the, the joints were exposed on their hands because their fingers through the ears just kind of just eroded and fell off. Or a person who doesn't even have a full nose on their face, but just two holes. I've seen people with leprosy where they don't even have ears, just a hole on either side right here. I've seen them where their eyes have, have just pretty much everything around here. The flesh has pretty much just disappeared and you can see the bone. And all of that. You say, well, how come it's not bleeding? Because over the passage of time, because leprosy comes to some people slowly, all of that flesh, it just cauterizes. And so it keeps the blood from flowing. But yet somebody will just wake up and I mean the tip of their finger just be left on the pillow, left on the bed, you know. And Jesus comes to the house of a man like this because he's not afraid of the illness. He's not afraid of the disease. And he knows that somebody like like this needs someone to come close to them and accept them. See, Now, we know that leprosy is a type of sin. So we should be glad that the Lord cozied up next to us when we were living in sin. And we should be pleased that despite the worst kinds of sicknesses on this planet, Jesus comes close to them. I'm telling you, in this this situation here, I'm so glad Jesus didn't social distance, but went to where this man was. Yeah, went into his house and was not afraid to have a meal with him. Now, this same Jesus lives in you. And if you had a neighbor and you knew the neighbor, Your neighbor had tuberculosis and you knew they were in a weakened condition or somebody had diphtheria. And the children were in there and they were hungry and didn't have food. Would you be bold and strong enough to believe that Jesus could help you walk in there and yet maybe minister to that person who may need the sheets on their bed changed? Who may need a meal made for them in that home? Or would you just stay in your house and be afraid and just let them suffer? Well, Jesus went to this man's house, and because he did that, how do you think that made Simon the leper feel? Gave him dignity. Oh, the Savior has come to my home. He doesn't look at me and think of me as somebody he needs to shy away from. He comes right into his house. But not only did Jesus come in, but you can see in verse 7, there was also this lady. And it didn't. she didn't have any care in the world. It didn't bother her one bit that it was Simon the leper's house. She wasn't interested in Simon the leper. She was interested in Jesus. And so she comes in verse 7 there, and she has an alabaster box of precious ointment, and she poured it on his head. So here come this lady with what she had. She comes to where Jesus is, doesn't ask for permission to pour it on him. Doesn't worry about whether or not he's going to be offended. Just simply takes her little white marbled alabaster thing and pours that thick substance right on top of his head. And you can imagine his hair becoming wet and sticky with all of that. It's probably running down his beard if he had one and onto his clothing. And everybody's looking at her and looking at him. But she still came with what she had and presented it to the king and poured it out. See? Poured it out. Now, the the point in this teaching with this is very simple. It doesn't tell us if she was wealthy. It doesn't tell us if she was poor, but it simply tells us she brought what she had. And that's how you should be. That's how I should be. Bring to Jesus what you possess. Bring to him What you have, you say, well, I don't have much. You have a whole lot you can bring to Jesus that you can pour out on him. You say, give me an illustration. The Bible says that his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Pour that out on him. And you don't just pour it out on the Lord in good times. You pour it out at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So whatever I'm passing through, Lord, I'm praising you, I'm glorifying you, I am worshiping you. Here is my way to pour out on you something that I know you'll appreciate because he never rebuked her. So obviously, it was something that he 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 was quite pleased about. But this lady, she she was bold and she was courageous. And I don't think she was worried about, as I said, what Simon the leper or anybody else thought. She didn't care if this was supper time and they're running in and out and bringing food. She wanted an audience with the king. And when you want time with God and you want precious private time with God, you've got to break up your own private situation. Get away from your family members. Get away from your friends. Wherever you have discovered that the Son of God is, that's where you've got to go. Yeah, now we know wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus is right there in his midst. But I can tell you this if if my life was broken and 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 I was wounded and all of that and I found out God was showing up in a powerful way somewhere in Topeka or in Lincoln or something like that, I'd probably end up in one of them church services. Yeah. I probably would. That doesn't take away from the fact that God loves me and he can reach me in my living room. I'm just telling you that if God is moving and God's dealing with people, I want to be where, I want to be anywhere where people are pouring it out. That's what I'm saying. See? And if, and if they're doing that, those are the kinds of people that serve as good examples. So if you're with folks that love God and they're not afraid of creating for God a garden of praise, then it just seems like those are the kinds of people that you'd want to spend time with, you know. This lady brought what she had. What do you have? See, what do I have? When we think about our our possessions, so verse eight, when his disciples saw it, they they had indignation, saying, "What purpose is this waste?" Now, don't you just love that? You know, first first we had problems with the, the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, now we've got problems with the people who shouldn't be given any problems. We, we have problems with the people who should have the solutions. And, and these are the ones who had power to cast out devils, power to heal the sick, had seen wonderful Things take place, led multitudes of people to God and they preached the kingdom of God. And now they're angry because the lady has come and brought this precious ointment and this alabaster and they're thinking about the poor. At least that's what they said. OK, <laughs> that's what they said. Yeah, that's what they said, because, you know, as well as I do, that just because people are complaining about something that doesn't necessarily mean that's really what they're thinking about. I'm not under the impression at all that these folks cared anything at this moment about poor folks. But I do think that they were uh, somewhat unhappy with the fact this lady had disrupted their uh, proceedings and came in there and did this to Jesus. And they call it a waste. Now, from their perspective, it was a waste. Do you think it was a waste from hers? No, no. She brought what she had. See, She brought what she had. And when when you come to the Lord with what you have and you present it to him sincerely and faithfully, there may be some people who will say something like, well, I just don't understand why you got to go through all that. Doesn't take all of that. Why are you such a fanatic about serving God? See? Yeah. Why do, you, why do you feel the need to, to be in church more than once a week? I mean, after all, I mean, one hour a month is pretty good religious time. Why, why do you feel the need to have to fellowship with saints? Why do you have to read the Bible all the time? What's the reason for the waste? Sometimes people who are Christians don't have a love for God and a love for his things like they should have. Yeah. What's the purpose of this waste? Well, first of all, it's not a waste of time. It's not a waste of money. It's not a waste of resource because I didn't ask you for anything. I brought to God what I had. And if someone makes the decision that they want to spend an hour and a half laying in the presence of God, talking to him in an intercession, why does that bother you? If somebody says they want to get some tracks and they want to go out and pass out tracks on the street corner somewhere or stand outside Steve's grocery store and let all of them heathen know they need Jesus, why would that bother you? If somebody wanted to go to the nearest gas station and stand out there and say, everybody heading into Valentino's, I'm going to give you something where you can think about God, why would that offend you? See, the reason it would offend you is because you don't realize that the people who are stirred up to do this may be passing through something where they're trying to grow closer to God and draw closer to God. And you may be taking for granted what you've had all this time. Yeah. And this is how the disciples were. They don't they didn't see any 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 need for all of that. And and I probably better say everybody that goes into Steve's grocery store on heathen. So he he don't be calling me about this message, okay? So, so then, if, if we understand that it's not a waste of time to come into the presence of God, then it's not a waste of time when we pour it out, see? If, if I take my praise, if I take my life, which he wants to be a living sacrifice offered to him in reasonable service, if I pour that life out for him, That's not a waste of time. And there are plenty of people who said to their kids in in past years, why in the world would you want to give your life in service to God in that manner when you can serve God right here? I've told you through the years parents raise their kids to sing songs like where you lead, I'll follow. See? Where you go, I'll go and all that kind of a thing. And then first time the kids say they're moving to another state or going overseas and everybody's throwing tantrums. I'm talking about the parents, not grandparents, throwing tantrums and rolling all over the floor and crying. Oh, my God, my baby's leaving me. Well, it's not about you. You you raised them and you told them that they should follow the king. So now they're taking what they have and they're offering it to the Lord. And now you're trying to stop them with all of these emotional things. You see all of these tears that are flowing when God is simply trying to get them to draw closer to him. You've heard my story of the lady in Ohio who, who prayed for for years that her daughter would become a Christian. Then she became a Christian. Then she went off to Bible college. Come to the end of Bible college, she felt like God put it on her heart to go to India. Told her mother, she's going to India. Her mother was displeased. said, why in the world do you want to go over there? We got sinners here. You want to go over there to that place where they don't even have a washing machine or anything like that? And she said to the little girl, I'd rather see you dead than see you on the mission mission field in India. Well, she's telling this story to this congregation that's sitting there listening, but she's telling the story at her daughter's funeral. She died before she ever made it to India. And she's standing in front of that congregation begging them to forgive her for how she acted when her daughter tried to leave. All she tried to do was pour it out. See, But here we've got a casket now and we've got a mom up here grieving simply because she thought the whole thing was a waste of time. That's what we're talking about. folks. It's not always sinners that that hinder us or put obstacles in front of us, sometimes it's people closest to us. Closest to us. So verse nine This ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Yeah. How do you like that? And when Jesus understood it, he said to them, why are you troubling the woman? For she has wrought a good work upon me. So here is Jesus' testimony of what the woman did. They said it was a waste. He said it was a good work. So you don't need everybody's approval for what you're doing if out of the depths of your heart, you are lavishing God with something that he desires. Yeah. Sometimes we we want to please man too much. And man is trying to keep us away from the Savior that gave up everything to give us everything so that we would give up everything. Because the Bible says the one that loses his life finds it. If you're going to find your life, you got to lose it. Nobody has ever given up houses, lands, family and all of that, except they received it a hundredfold. Jesus said, talking to his disciples. So whatever you give up, it tends to come back to you later on as you walk with God. Now, verse 11 is interesting. And I think our politicians ought to learn this verse and read it. But You have the poor always with you, but me, ye have not always. And you say, why do I think the politicians ought to read this? Because they think you can eradicate poverty with a program of giving away money. And giving away a whole lot of money is never going to eradicate poverty. And there are several reasons for that. Well, first of all, poverty is in the world because of sin. And you're never going to eradicate sin and the presence of sin with money. Other reasons, people are poor for a variety of reasons. Some people are poor because they were born into poor circumstances. And so a mom and dad not necessarily having the resources or a mindset to help push them further along into something greater than what they have. Sometimes the children do the same thing the parents did or even less than that. How do you know that? Because I see families that are on government assistance. It goes to the next generation. It goes right on down to the grandkids. Growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, I saw families that when the child was in Head Start, the family was receiving welfare. When the child graduated from high school, the family was still receiving welfare. No change of thinking, no change of behavior. The poor you have with you always has nothing to do with the fact that a person... Uh, didn't have opportunity. It has to do in that instance with how we exploit opportunity. Another reason we have poor people is because of bad habits. Bad habits. Yeah. If, if, if someone's going to go out and they're going to stick needles in their arms and shoot themselves up, then they've got to understand it costs a lot of money to have that stuff. And some people just literally, they just work to get their next drug. I've seen drug addicts sell every, every piece of furniture out of their parents or grandparents' homes. If you do that, you're gonna be poor. It's gonna be poor. Yeah. So bad habits can do that. You, you find somebody who enjoys, uh, tobacco. It doesn't matter if they're chewing it, smoking it, putting it in a pipe. I'm telling you, that stuff is expensive. Yeah, you can go right on over here to one of these stores and I'm at 40, 50 dollars a carton. And some people go through a couple of cartons a week and then pretty soon you're looking at four and five hundred dollars a month. That's a house. No, that's a car. No. No wonder we have poor people. That happens. Yeah. Sometimes it's it's because we have people who just disregard the things they're told. See, somebody tries to explain something to them and they won't listen. There are very few people in this world who go from their teenage years to retirement and don't see a million dollars. Are you listening to me? Very few. Because if, if you start at the age of, let's say, 22, and you're making at least twenty to $30,000 annually, $30,000 every 10, 10 years, 300000 By the time somebody hits 66 or 70, whatever the retirement age is now, by the time they get way up there, they've come through a million dollars. The difference between one group and another group is what they do with the resources that they have. A waste of time. And if we waste our time, waste our energy, waste our resources... Then, of course, we then become confirmation of Jesus' words here in verse 11. You have the poor always with you, but me you don't always have. See, So we focus then on having him, because if we have him who was rich, who became poor, that for his sake we could become rich, then we realize that being rich, that's just a relative term. It doesn't mean you have to be Bill Gates. What does it mean to be wealthy? To have enough to supply your needs? There's not a poor person in Santiago, Chile that wouldn't trade places with anybody in here right now. Yeah. There's not a kid along the Mexican border living in a metal shack that wouldn't want to have the house that you have right now, even if you don't like the one you have. I can promise you. So in in reality, all of us are wealthy in a relative sense, you may not feel wealthy when you compare yourselves with with other people. I mean, I mean, goodness, everybody can't be a, a, a Mister Mister Big Bucks like John Ireland. But we do what we can, see, and, and we we pray. <laughs> I'll tease them, but we we praise the Lord. by however the King blesses us. Okay, so, so turning back then to, to verse, verse 12, Jesus is continuing to testify about this lady. He says, she has poured this ointment on my body and she did it for my burial. So he's saying this was a prophetic act. She didn't even understand what she was doing. But just like when a, a Jewish person died and they had to prepare the body with uh, special ointments and spices and then wrap it and then entomb it he's saying here sh- she started the process she's anointed me for burial and of course Jesus knew he was coming back from the grave so if she anointed him uh, for death then you quite naturally she's anointed him for life This is why Jesus said in verse 13, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this woman, what she has done, be told for a memorial of her. Wherever the gospel is preached, this act is going to be known. It's a powerful thing to think about. Here you've got the chief priests and scribes fighting on one hand to kill him. Then he goes into the house of a leper who should be alienated. Then in comes a a woman who is anointing him for the very burial that he's destined to enter into, and then he says, "The story of this lady's act is going to be told everywhere." I mean, it's powerful. Something to think about when you consider, in the gospel accounts, the the importance of the ladies. I mean, they're just—they're everywhere. Where? where he is even when the guys disappear in the garden of gethsemane the bible says his disciples fled and forsook him they took off and ran But the bible tells us those ladies they stayed close by so how do you know that because when jesus passed from one judgment to the next and he was carrying that cross making his way to calvary the bible says the ladies were following behind him they were crying and jesus said don't be weeping for me that weep for yourselves. You're the ones going to be stuck behind here. You you just be crying for yourselves right now. But the ladies were still there. Luke chapter eight, I believe it is, or nine. One of the first couple of verses tell us that Jesus had ladies around him who ministered to him out of their substance. So Jesus had ladies around him who had resources and ability, and who, if they were married, had husbands that didn't mind them using their substances and resources for the king. Yeah. And when Jesus was at the cross, them ladies were still there. And when Jesus was taken down off the cross by by, uh, the gentleman and placed in the sepulcher, you remember early the next morning, it was the ladies made their way right there to that tomb to see what has happened. So folks, I, I want you to, to, to think about what you have. How can you offer it to God? How can you make it available to God? You know, t- take your heart, and open your heart up to the king. Pour that out before him. David would go to the Lord in prayer and he would say, Lord, let my prayer be a drink offering. Pour it out unto you. And in the presence of God, It's a wonderful thing to be able to give him what we possess. And as a a body of believers, the one thing no one can ever take away from you is your praise of God. People can take a lot of things from you. They can never take your praise. With these lips, we praise him continually. So if you're passing through a difficult time uh, presently, I still think you ought to praise him and worship him because he's good. If if you have uh, financial uh, stress on you or whatever it might be, it's still a good time to praise him. If you've got pains in your body, unsaved loved ones, whatever you may be dealing with because it never specifically tells us this woman's need, she still came And she poured it out there. That's exactly what we should do when it comes to the king. It's the little small things, folks, that rob us of having joy. And the scripture says the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, we quote the verse all the time. The foxes, little foxes spoil the vines. But, you know, in the the church over in Red Cloud, I can go out there. Some evenings just before dusk and I can stand in that sanctuary, look out those windows to the west. And every now and then you can see a little mama fox and three or four little baby foxes out there romping and having having a good time. But I look around that hedgerow and all of those little bushes and you can see where where those little foxes have just been gnawing on this stuff. You know, the bark and stuff, just cutting their teeth on all that stuff. They can't get way up here. They can get down here. So you, you, you take those, those old grapevines in the Middle East where the, the foxes had access to, and you got those, those bigger foxes. They can leap. I'm telling you, they can jump straight on up. They got quite the vertical on them for you basketball folks. They can go straight on up there. But but them little babies can't quite do that. So what do they do when they get around those little vines? After they've nibbled on all the little small grapes and everything else or whatever kind of fruit vine it may be, they'll go to gnawing on that wood and they're trying to gnaw their way down to that sap and they're going to lick and suck that sap. And then pretty soon, because they're spending so much time along the base of that, everything up here starts to wither starts to wither and if you think of what the adversary tries to do in your life and in my life it's all about that how can he create the kinds of circumstances in your life that will remove from you the life of god when it comes to praise if he can take away your ability to worship him and to love him he's won half the battle folks if the joy of the Lord is your strength and you don't have any joy, you don't even have strength to resist the devil. You can't fight back. All you can do is just lay there and let the devil just walk in and walk out doing whatever he wants to do. Amen. Let's just take a few moments, then, And let's apply what we've talked about just in worshiping God. And when I say Apply it. Some of you in him probably have never, with your own ears, ever heard your mouth even say, I love you, Jesus, out loud. But you should. But you should. And, and when you think about reasons to praise God. Praise him for the things that you think are simple, but yet so important. I praise the Lord for my wife. I praise the Lord we have people to teach. Praise the Lord we have a place to gather. So for a few moments, let's just create a garden of praise and, and be thankful to the king. Father, we worship you. We thank you this evening that we have health in our bodies. I thank you, God, for opening my eyes today. God, Thank you, almighty God, that with this mouth I can praise you. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my family. Thank you for our churches. Thank you, Lord, for how you provide. I am so grateful, Lord, that we have vehicles. Oh, God, we can drive. Thank you for the clothes that you've supplied. Thank you, oh, God, for the food that fills our cupboards and our refrigerators. I worship you because you're worthy. We worship you, we extol you, we magnify you, we praise you, almighty God. There's no one like you in all of the earth. Folks, don't get tired of worshiping them. Just praise them. Father, we love you. Thank you, oh God, that we were raised in this wonderful nation. Thank you that we were raised, oh God, in this great country, oh Lord. We praise you that we dwelled here in the heartland. And, oh, God, we ask you to preserve and to keep us and to bless us because you, oh, God, are greater than all others, Lord. We praise you. We worship you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Almighty God, almighty God, you are so wonderful. Thank you, oh, God, for loving the world so much that you gave your son. We're so grateful that that son loved the world so much that he gave his life. We thank you, God, that the Holy Ghost does all that he can to reveal the love of that son for this world, oh God. Oh, Jesus, we praise you, we praise you, we praise you, we praise you, we praise you. What a Savior, folks. What a Savior, what a Savior, what a Savior. Our wives need to hear us. Thank God for our spouses. Husbands need to hear their wives. Thank God for their spouses. Parents need to hear their kids. Thank God for their parents and vice versa. And we need to be able to thank the king every day for the friends and family that we have. For the Bible says he that has a friend must first show himself friendly. But when you have a friend, you have somebody That sticks closer than a brother. Yeah. Amen? Praise God. Praise God. Praise God.